Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Jesus called them one by one, and they all followed him. And they did so gladly. Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 through 20 tell us about those apostles that were in the circle of Jesus. And of course, we know that there were some that were within his more inner circle beyond that even, as you think about his his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was in the shadow of the cross. But he had followers in the apostles. As you continue to read in Scripture, you observe that a number of folks decided to follow Jesus. Multitudes followed Jesus. Wherever he went, they went. And they were fascinated by his miracles, and they were... Um, impressed by his words, the things that he shared that were unique to them. They hadn't heard anything like that before. And as we mentioned just in passing last Sunday, there were even folks who said, according to John chapter 6, that never a man spake like this man. His voice was different. There was just something unique. But after Jesus left this world to take his place at the right hand of the throne of God, his disciples were left behind, and the disciples that were left behind had a similar mission as Jesus did. It wasn't to die on the cross, but it was to die to themselves and to bring others, to invite others to follow him. And they did, Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. The apostle Paul extended a similar challenge to the Corinthians and, and asked them, would you follow Christ, only as I follow Christ. Have you ever, and I know I'm talking to great Bible students, as a Bible student, have you ever just thought about the beginning of Christianity and the timing of it? If you remember back in, in the Old Testament, as we read through the prophets, and I think specifically about um, Joel 2 and Isaiah 2. You remember in Isaiah chapter 2, in, in about verse 2, it says that it will come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established and shall be exalted above the heavens and all nations shall flow unto it. And many will say, come and let us go up into the mountain of the house of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and We'll walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion, of course, being another word for Jerusalem. And that's a reference to Acts chapter 2, and how that the disciples assembled in Jerusalem according to prophecy, and they began to preach a sermon unlike had ever been preached before about the, the, the Christ who they were guilty of killing and all of our sins killed him, but, but they were specifically present, some of them. And, and God raised him and glorified him, and they were pricked in their hearts on that day, that, that Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do about this knowledge? We, we killed Jesus. We're sorry for that. We're, 
we're, we're, we're broken hearted that it was us, that it was our sins that put Jesus on the, what should we do about that? And they were told to repent and be baptized and, and they did that. I think about Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. It says that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, but it will break in pieces and it will consume all of these and the kingdom of God will stand forever. And as I think about Daniel 2, I'm specifically mindful of the, the leadership that would exist when the church would begin. And the leadership, uh, the, the leadership that would exist specifically I'm referring to is Rome. And so when the church of Christ had its beginning, it was during days marred with political corruption, with, with how shall I say it, cruelty, with utter sexual perversion. In fact, you could, you could probably go back to Rome and, and say, some of this looks familiar. If we could get in a time machine and go back in time, we would say some of this looks familiar, but I would suggest that though we might think some of it looks familiar to today's society, there is still quite a contrast. When's the last time that you were walking down the streets of Salem or Roanoke and maybe, maybe down Main Street, maybe you were on your way to, to one of the, the fine restaurants there and, and it's at night, and the street's well lit. And you're just impressed about how bright the streets are. But you look in horror because the streets are lit by burning bodies. Such was the case in the first century. It's not the case today, at least in, in the U.S. But so much corruption, so much wickedness existed at that time. And, and that is the time that, that God chose for the church of Christ to have its beginning. And, and my, it did. And thousands upon thousands of people were obedient to the gospel. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that there were daily conversions in spite of the wickedness. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that people were just eager for something different. They wanted something better. They, they, wanted something, they wanted something that would bring them genuine joy in their hearts. For a few minutes this morning, what I want to do is I want to think about this idea of following Christ in a culture in which we live. Now I mentioned to you that the culture of that day was wicked for a variety of reasons. One of them included sexual reasons. That was the, the foundation of some of the wickedness that we saw in the first century. So I want us to think about it because this is a very sexualized culture in which we live today. I want to think about following Jesus in a sexualized culture. And perhaps when I say that, maybe you're starting to squirm. Maybe you're feeling uncomfortable. Nobody in this room is more uncomfortable than I am right now. But I believe if we're going to share some of the things that I'm going to share this morning, if we're going to share it anywhere, it needs to be here. 
It needs to be in a safe environment like this, which we can speak with the foundation of the Word of God under us, so that as we leave this place, we're better prepared to deal with some of the things that we must deal with in our society. And so as we get started, I want to basically just define our terms at the outset. And so I said the lesson is being called following Christ in an over-sexualized culture. What do we mean by culture? If you were to use your device this morning and, and hit the word culture and, and use that little uh, look up feature, you might have uh, two or three different definitions. But here's the definition that, that I want to share. And this is something that I've just put together after exploring various definitions of the term. It is the exploration of humanity, which implies our ability to achieve, and it suggests a commonness and interpersonal connection that we share with people. So culture is what brings us together. Wally was speaking this morning in our Bible class, and he, as he does each time, he, he brings a little bit of home over. I've noticed that about you, Wally. You always do a great job with that. And, and he was talking about some of the Nigerian culture which included, in this morning's class, included the, the fact that we just can't trust, trust electricity. And that was one of the things that, that he brought up. But, but culture is something that, that we share in common. And so as folks in the U.S., we share many things in common. Folks in Nigeria, they share things in common. And then it doesn't matter where we live on this planet, there are other things that we share in common as a culture just of human beings. But it's beyond just that interpersonal connection of things that we share in common, but it's, it's our humanity that embred within it is this idea of being able to accomplish things. I was watching Fox News this morning, and they were showing an interview of the youngest man, he's now in his 80s, the youngest man to walk on the moon. We did that. And I say we did that. We did because God puts within us the ability to think and ultimately to accomplish, to achieve, and to do incredible things. We did that. We did that because of our human ingenuity. So that's culture. Second is the word sexualized. Now, I believe that that, that word is pretty loaded. I believe that, that it implies a number of things, but, but here's what I mean by it. Sexualized or sexualization, it's that which objectifies the original purpose of sex which God established. When we go to Scripture and we, we study passages like Genesis and 1 Corinthians, uh, in particular, I think about the idea of, of procreation and then, of course, satisfaction. Those are two primary ideas. But the thing that they have in common is they are to be um, enjoyed within the sanctity of the marriage relationship, Hebrews 13 and verse number 4. Christ. How would you define Christ? I would simply just say Messiah. Savior of the world. And, and then following is this idea of walking in step with. And so here's, here's if I were to put it all together, here's, here's what I've got. 
It's the idea of a sexualized culture objectifies the intended purposes of sex through humanity's human ingenuity to the breakdown of interpersonal relationships. But walking in step with the Savior is the greatest relationship of all. Here's what I want to do. I want to make just three observations. And the first one is kind of digging into the problem a little bit. Second of all, I want us to think about some takeaways. What is the message for us today? And then third and finally, what is the hope? What is the hope that we can take away after having discussed some of these things together? So uh, there are a lot of symptoms, I think, of an over-sexualized culture. Humanity's idea, for instance, humanity's idea of sex has morphed. According to culture today, sex is now an out-of-body experience. You say, an out-of-body experience? What do you mean? It's an out-of-body experience, and we see it as evidenced by the gratification that's received through things like sexting, online sexual chats, pornography. Sex is more explicit in, in our current culture than it's ever been before, and it's becoming increasingly that way and increasingly visible in our society. But here's the second thing that I see, and that is that there is a shift to objectifying. Remember we said that sexualization and objectifying go hand in hand. There is a shift in objectifying men and women, boys and girls, relative to appearance and sexual appeal. Subsequently, what we've observed is an objectification that results in decreased moods and a number of mental health disorders, including things like eating disorders, sexual dysfunction, depression, especially among the female population. The demoralizing objectification of women is regularly contributed to by Hollywood, and it's virtually impossible to escape it unless you just turn the TV off, don't go to the movies, don't ever read a magazine, never get on the and you see what I'm saying? You can't get away from it. It's there. There's also a sense of self-sexualization, especially among young people, due to the influence of social and mass media. Well, what do you mean? I'm talking about selfie sharing on platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and Snapchat and maybe others, but they've contributed to a negative symptomology because they just don't look, the young person says, I just don't look good enough. That's self-sexualization. That's objectification. I just don't look good enough. Well, how do you know that? Why do you say, I just don't look good enough? Well, I don't get enough likes on my social media feed. And therefore, I must not look good enough. I'm not appealing enough. I'm not tr attractive enough. I don't have enough likes. And then there's the comprehensive data that supports this, uh, this, this uh, media role in contributing to this self-sexualization. So there is the, the uh, idea that humanity's idea of sex has morphed. There is an objectification of the body. 
Then there's the self-sexualization evidenced by media. But then there is this idea of the over-sexualized culture with respect to femininity and masculinity. I want you to notice what I left out there. I did not say feminine and masculine ideology. If I had included the word ideology, then femininity and masculinity becomes a politics of gender. And when you have a politics of gender, it is possible to change. We've referred to this mental health disorder, this, this changing of gender. We've referred to that as something called gender dysphoria. If you were to look in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, it would say this, that it is a marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and assigned gender. That's the DSM-5. The, the DSM has gone through a change and it's becoming available, but it went through a change as of March. And in the change, the terminology has changed. And with that changed terminology, what you have is that gender dysphoria is now based on um, uh, items that have been updated culturally due to wanting to be sensitive regarding language. So the term desired gender is now experienced gender, according to the new DSM. The term cross-sex medical procedure is now gender-affirming medical procedure. The term natal male is now natal, uh, or natal female is now individual assigned male or female at birth. Assigned that. Implying, of course, that it is acceptable to change that at some point in the future. Now, let me let me speak just very briefly about the gender roles that I believe have been influenced by history and an over-sexualized culture. Here's what I mean by that historically. Historically, there's been a concrete set of gender roles that have not necessarily been enforced or shared by scripture. For instance, there's the scripturally inaccurate position that the man is the only one to conduct business outside the home, leaving the woman behind only to work in the kitchen and to tend to the children. But historically, that has been the accepted gender role, right? Man goes out, man uh, kills the animal, man brings the animal home, a woman fixes the animal for food and tends to the children. That's it. But this is a poorly construed position that has ultimately resulted in the feminist position of repressing her femininity. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to stand against that and therefore I'm not going to demonstrate any feminine characteristics. Same is true with masculinity. A female, it's thought, a female can't be strong. A male can't be tender. And yet those things are not supported in Scripture at all. 
Because of the historical push in our over-sexualized culture, what we've seen is a paradigm shift with respect to genders. I believe there's also evidence that because of this false historical view and this currently over-sexualized culture, we've seen a, a shift in gender role ideology, meaning the change of gender, and the increase, not the creation of, but the increase of homosexuality as well. I'm going to talk more about that in a second, but let's, let's shift gears to what's the message? What, what's the takeaway? I think that we could say more about an over-sexualized culture but what I want to talk about now is I want to talk about how Christians can follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture. And as a reminder, it's important to note that our culture today is not drastically different than it was 2,000 years ago. To follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to be penitent. I think we need to be penitent. If there's one area in which Christians should show themselves different from the rest of the world, it's within the realm of sexualization. Here's what Peter said. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a peculiar people, a different people. And you should show the praises of Him, Jesus, who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. You cannot follow evil and follow Jesus at the same time. It's an impossibility, 1 John 1 and verse 6. Second of all, to follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture, we have to purify our hearts. We have to be penitent, but we also must purify our hearts. And purifying the heart requires that we meditate on the right things. Just as was read for us a moment ago from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, these things that are holy and just and pure, these are the things that you meditate on. James chapter 4 and verse number 8 reminds us to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, you cannot follow the world and Christ at the same time. So we must be penitent, but we must also purify our hearts, meditating on the right things. Too much time is spent in front of a screen and not enough time at gazing upon the righteousness of God. The average time that Americans spend on a device looking at a screen is seven hours a day. Seven hours a day is how much time the average person, maybe even in this room, spends on the device in a day. Tweens are in front of a screen for nearly five hours a day. Teenagers average over seven hours a day, each day looking at their screen. Approximately 30% of the screen time is spent looking at social media. And I think there are benefits to social media, but there are undoubtedly negative consequences as well. And I think this is evidenced by the things that I've already shared. Now, don't misunderstand. I think it's unreasonable to suggest that we sit with our Bible open in our lap for seven to eight hours a day. 
If we're full-time students, if we're full-time employers or employees, it, I don't know how you're going to be able to, and sleep, how you're going to be able to sit with the Bible in your lap for eight hours a day. But here's the thing. It's equally unacceptable to expect God to be well pleased with us when we spend a disproportionate amount of time with God in prayer and study and meditation. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. We won't know how to live if we don't look into God's word. And we've got to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling aright the word of truth, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We can't even uh, expect to be uh, pleasing in God's sight if we don't study. But third, to follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture, we've got to practice what we preach. We have to be penitent, we've got to purify our hearts, but we've got to practice what we preach. There's a great deal of inconsistency, I think, related to this idea of following Christ in an over-sexualized culture. And by that, I mean parents need to tell their children that sex outside of marriage is a sin. And it is. But parents also need to be mindful not to invite that same type of behavior into their home to view on the big screen whether it be as individuals or as a family as well. We can't be inconsistent and invited in and, and, and watch what I would term as soft sexual content on the screen and then say we're not okay with sexual content behind the bedroom door or in a parked car. Church leaders... Ministers, elders, deacons, Bible class teachers. Their, their lessons are good. Lessons on sin, the sin of lust. But at the same time, there's inconsistency. Because while there are these lessons over here about, about, about sin and about lust and, and, and immodesty and sexual promiscuity and those types of things, they'll display pictures on the internet for all to see of their children or themselves engaged in the exact same types of things, inviting lust into the hearts, dancing, mixed swimming, immodest dress, on and on. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, that this is the very thing that can cause some folks to lose their soul because they are glorifying in the behavior. They may not even, they may not in some cases be participating in the behavior, but they may be glorifying the behavior. Next, to follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture. Not only must we be penitent, not only must we purify our hearts, not only must we practice what we preach, but we've got to provide a balanced approach to this conversation of masculinity and femininity. The Bible definitely teaches gender roles. No question about it. Galatians chapter 3, 28, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, and a slew of passages tell us that there are roles that men play and roles that women play. 
in society should play. But the Bible does not teach extremism. The old cliche that man works while the woman stays behind barefoot and pregnant is both obtuse and scripturally incorrect. Of course man has a responsibility to provide for his family, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Of course woman has the responsibility to be the keeper of the home, Titus 2 and verse number 5. But women and men both can provide for, protect, and maintain the home, Proverbs 31 and Ephesians 5. Men and women can both be influential leaders. Deborah, Judges 4, 4 through 9. Esther, Luke 8, 1 through 3, Micah 6, 4, and other passages. But this is also true with respect to masculinity and femininity. Yes, no apology. Femininity does suggest that women are generally weaker, not less significant, weaker physically in some ways. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Ephesians 1.6. And yes, without apology, men should treat women with tenderness and compassion. Ephesians chapter 5. Men are different and should behave like men. 1 Corinthians 16. Women are different and should behave like women. Proverbs 31. But what does it mean? As a, as a man, let me speak to the, to the man part of this. What does it mean to be a man? Does it mean to have a deep voice, to have physical strength, to have an ability to hold back tears, or to have that ability to give that sharp, penetrating st stare? Is that the idea of a real man? If it is, if that is society's view, it's incongruent with God's idea of being a real man. In the notebooks of Lazarus Long, it says this, that a real man should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, design a building, uh, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, solve equations, pitch manure, pro program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, and die gallantly. That's a real man. Much is said today about the characteristics of the real man. The opinion one should be most interested in, in what a real man is, is God's. That's how we should value the criteria of a real man. What does God say? God said that he's interested in finding real men. Jeremiah said, run ye to and fro and through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the, the broad places thereof. If you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it, Jeremiah 5 and verse 1. So what is a real man? What are the qualities? A real man aligns his heart with God's heart. If you don't align your, guys, if you don't align your heart with God's heart, you're not a real man, according to Scripture. A real man is angered by wickedness, by sin, to the extent that he refuses. Doesn't mean that he, he falls, but he refuses to participate in it. It is far from him. He, he wants nothing to do with sin and wickedness. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. But if you are as involved in wickedness and sin as, as the devil himself, so to speak, then you're not a real man. 
A real man attempts to make a difference in the lives of people. A real man seeks to, seeks to value others and to be a, a benefit to other people and not so much be about what he can receive. Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31. That's a real man. You see, our ideas and God's are not the same. God's idea of a real man is one who has a heart that longs to serve God and to be like Jesus. God's ideal of a real man is someone who hates wickedness with a perfect hatred. And God's ideal of a real man is someone whose heart's broken over their sins and the sins of others. That's a real man. God's idea of a real man is someone who will stand in the gap and try to make a difference in the world around him. That's a real man. That's how you follow Jesus in over-sexualized culture. What's the message of hope? What's the thing that we can take away and have hope in this morning? Number one, to follow Christ in an over-sexualized culture, we've got to see Jesus at the cross. We have to see Him at the cross. Luke 23 Matthew 27. If you're like me, you mention those chapters immediately, your, eye, your mind goes to the cross. Because you know that's what those passages are about. So let's take a moment to use our senses. Let's use our five senses. If you need to close your eyes and do this, fine. If not, that's fine too. But I want you to, to at, least, at least humor me in this. Using your five senses, I want you to imagine that you're Jesus. You're on the cross, and you're Jesus. What are five things that you can see? Your five things may be different than mine, but, but five things that you see. Do you see that person to your right or to your left? Those thieves? Do you see those mockers below the hill? Do you see your mother? Do you see John? Are you able to see the blood that's now flowing from your, your head because of the, the crown? Do you see that? Do you see, do you see the blood that's piling up on the ground? Do you see the sky? What do you see? I want you to think of four things that you physically feel. Remember, you, and I mean this as respectfully as I know how, but remember, you're now Jesus. You're on the cross. What are four things do you, that you feel? Do you feel the roughness of that wood on your back? Do you feel the nails in your hands and feet? Do, do you feel perhaps the rawness of the rope that's likely tied to your wrist along with the nails through the hands? Do you feel, has the thorn, the crown of thorns, has it adjusted on, on your head in some way as you're moving on the cross? What do you feel physically? What are, what are three things that you hear? Do you hear the jeers of the people? Do you hear the crying of Mary? Do you hear your own gasp? For breath? What do you hear? What are two things that you smell? Do you smell your own stench? You smell your sweat? 
Do you smell your blood? Do you smell death in the air? What do you smell? What's one thing that you taste? Do you taste the sweat that's coming into your mouth and touching your tongue? Do you, do you, do you taste the blood that's run from your head and is touching your tongue? What do you taste? Had it not been for Jesus, we would have been the subject of those sights and those feelings and those sounds and those smells and those tastes. But praise God, we're not Jesus. We should give diligence not to allow the effects of an over-sexualized culture to infiltrate our hearts and our lives so that we cause Jesus to be crucified all over again. And when we allow this over-sexualized culture to captivate our own hearts and to become guilty just as the world around us is, Hebrews 6 and verse 6 tells us that we have put Jesus right back on the cross. To follow Jesus in an over-sexualized culture, not only must we see Jesus, but we must see Jesus in our corner. In Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 18, He's there. He's our greatest cheerleader. And we shouldn't forget that Jesus was tempted in every way that, that we are tempted today, 1 John chapter 2. And so I want you to tell yourself, and, and, and maybe you can even do this at times as you're by yourself and shout this out loud, but I want you to tell yourself, Jesus knows what it's like to be me. When I am challenged by the culture around me, the temptation of the world around me to become just like the world around me, Jesus knows what it's like. He's been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. But do you know what it really means for Jesus to be in our corner? What it really means is that when we cry out to God and ask for forgiveness and help when we find ourselves challenged by these things, it really means that Jesus, as our mediator, He turns to the Father and He says, I get it. I know what it's like to be Him, to be her. When we see Jesus on the cross, our humanity brings us to His side. But when we see Jesus and He sees, looks back at us being challenged by sin, His deity and humanity brings Him to our side. And so therefore, when we are in an over-sexualized culture, we can follow Christ. Following Christ in an over-sexualized culture, is it possible? Not only is it possible, we must do it. And there is no greater relationship than the relationship that we have with Jesus. Maybe you've been overwhelmed by the culture in which you live, the immediate culture. Maybe you've been overwhelmed by the society, the broader culture in which we all live today. And in that being overwhelmed, you have succumbed to that temptation. And now, maybe not in this room, in this moment, at this time, maybe now, it's not so much of a temptation 
but come tomorrow it will be. And you're going to give in. You know you're going to give in. Just like you did all last week. You don't have to. You can choose to change that. You can choose to put that behind you and you can choose to follow Jesus. And you can choose to have the right kind of relationship in this world. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to come by faith, repenting, maybe even of some of these sins. Confessing your faith in Jesus, being immersed in water for the remission of your sins. You become a child of God. You're not going to live perfectly, but you're going to be made perfect in the image of God. And as you sin, the blood of Jesus Christ will wash your sins away as long as you repent and confess and as long as you're walking in the light. If we can be of assistance to you in some way this morning, let this invitation be yours as together we stand and as we sing.